Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Okay. It's good to see you again. It's been a couple weeks since I've been here, and um, last week our staff and students were in St. Louis for fall conference, and it was, it was a great weekend. There was about 85 of us from USI, and um, it's just exciting to see what God's been doing uh, in those sorts of contexts and uh, conferences. But I missed uh, being here for this class, and I won't miss another one. So uh, today and then the next five um, Sundays, except when the guy from uh, MacArthur's church will be here. They, uh, they're benching me for him for some reason. Uh, haven't understood that one. Haven't gotten over it yet, but it's okay. Um, so, you know, I, I know there's mixed reviews on the Myers-Briggs personality test, um, but the way I would test on that is an ISTP, and what that what the P means is I thrive best under pressure. Uh, so I, I don't I don't see things you know ten weeks in advance and plan things out over time like I am in the nick of time. You can count on me to get the job done. So this morning I'm printing out my handouts uh, like I do every morning at 5 a.m. Uh, before I come to church and. That's how you know I'm at my best. So I print out 75 of these handouts, and I notice there was a typo. And I don't like typos. You'll notice on the back side it says humanities radical corruption. It should not be like that. It should be humanity with a Y apostrophe S. So I notice it. I reprint out the handouts because I didn't want you to see this huge bolded mistake. Uh, but I took mine, which was the non-corrected form, put with my stuff, show up to church, 8.50 or so, get everything set up, realize I forgot all the handouts back in my house. So uh, I went and printed out all of the uncorrected form because that was the only copy I had. So by God's grace, I had one copy left. Uh, and he revealed my flaws to all of you, which was my uh, poor grammar on the word humanity. So uh, it's good to be back. Uh, we're going to be spending the next uh, five weeks going over the five points of Calvinism. We spent the first five weeks doing the five solas. Uh, so we're going to do a little bit of a recap, do an intro to what these five points are, uh, and then we're going to start on total depravity this morning. So uh, this whole class we've been studying doctrine. And so each week, uh, Caleb or I have, have been here and we said primary doctrine versus secondary doctrine. So, so I'll go through that quick, but... The, the reason why we keep emphasizing this point between primary and secondary doctrine is so, you know, at the end of November when this class is finished, if you, you would have known one thing, that primary doctrine is all beliefs that are essential to salvation, uh, that Jesus Christ is our Savior, He is God, Scripture is our authority, it's God's Word, and that our only hope can be found in Him. Um, and then secondary beliefs are all other doctrine that we view as important but not required for salvation. Um, so on your handout, um, for, under that recap, I have the, the five souls on there. The first is grace alone. So grace alone is unmerited favor from God, that we, we don't deserve to know him, but yet he loves us and gives us his favor through Christ. Uh, our, our main point there was we deserve nothing, but through Christ uh, we gain everything. Faith alone so faith is the means by which we're justified or made right before God. 
Scripture alone, that the Bible is our sole authority of truth and inspiration. Christ alone, that he is exclusive and sufficient. And that uh, through his person work, we have an object of salvation. And then finally, soli deo gloria. Uh, I wasn't here for that, but I'm sure Caleb did great. That all things are for the glory of God. So, uh, it was really fun doing the five solas. And it's, you know, it's such an essential part of what we believe about uh, who God is and how we know him. But I'm really looking forward to doing uh, the next five weeks with you and studying uh, what you know, Calvinism is and this acrostic tulip. Um, so let me pray, and then we'll get into it. Um, Lord God, um, God, we're just so thankful, God, that we're able uh, to enter into a relationship with you. Um, God, so thankful for Christ. God, thankful that you loved us. God, when we wanted nothing to do with you. God, when we wanted um, to live for ourselves, uh, you came in and rescued us. God, I just pray for us as we open up your word today and uh, read about the promises uh, that you have. God, I pray that we'd cling to them. God, that it would lead to uh, more knowledge of who you are, which would lead uh, to more love for who you are. And God, I pray that we would uh, be able to worship you in light of that. God, help us do that this morning. In your son's name I pray. Amen. Okay, so to start off, why are we studying this? Um, I think that's always a good place to start is why are we doing what we're doing? Um, and I love the Westminster Shorter Catechism. The first question, I don't know how many of you are familiar with this or have this memorized, I think, uh, you know, you don't have to memorize a whole catechism, but if you were to memorize one question in the catechism, uh, th- this would be the one. What is the chief end of man? So for all of us, what is your goal in life as a created son or daughter of God, redeemed by Christ. What is your chief end? Amen. So you should have this written on your heart that at your life you want to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Now that sounds really good, but the question is, how do you do it? How do you glorify God and enjoy him forever? Actual question. I'd say keep him first in everything we do, in our thoughts, in our mind, and things we say. Mm. Talk to people about him, let people know that he loves them, and just spread his word like he wants us to. Yep, so keep him first in all things. What else? Get to know him, right? If you're going to enjoy someone or something, you have to know what it is, know who it is. Yeah, yeah, you, you must enter into a relationship with Christ in order to glorify him and to enjoy him. What else? Obedience. Obedience, right. Why obedience? I agree with you. Right. So God has created us and he says, if you, if you want joy, if you want life, here's, here's boundaries for that. Here's how I've created you to live and to think and to act. We see this in the garden. And when we begin to live outside of obedience, we see uh, curse and consequences enter in. Um, even for believers. What else? Yeah. We had a statement last week um, that I recall. The glory of God comes from the end of ourselves. Mm. When we're, we're done with us, then we can begin to really show God's glory. 
Right. It's like a humility. Yes. Yeah. Think. You know. Submission. Yes. Uh, thinking of ourselves less, not thinking less of ourselves. Killer quote. Anything else? Yeah. Yeah. So talking about him, making him known. Absolutely. I mean, all the things that we love and enjoy, we talk about a lot. Why would we think it'd be any different for our king? Yeah, Rick. Yeah, good and the bad, right? So all things that God has done, giving him glory and honor and being thankful. Um, So how do we glorify and enjoy God? I think all those are really good answers, but at at the core, it's to, to enjoy him is to know him. If you're, going, if you're going to enjoy God, you have to know who he is. And the more you know him, the more you'll trust him. And so our goal for the rest of this class is to continue to get to know him more, which would lead to a greater trust, which I think will ultimately lead to an enjoyment of who God is as a result of our knowledge of him. So hopefully we'll accomplish what the Westminster Shorter Catechism is saying here, uh, that we would know him, glorify him, and enjoy him forever. So, brief rundown of uh, what Calvinism is. Uh, This will be a good question. What is Calvinism? So, most of you would say, probably, you'd probably fall in three camps. It's only possible to fall in three camps. I am, I am not, or I don't know what it is. So, if you were to define it, how would you define Calvinism? Biblical truth. That's not my definition, but it could be. How would you define Calvin? If someone comes up to you, what does it mean to be a Calvinist? T-U-L-I-P. Okay. But the guy's like, what's a tulip? I don't know what that is. It's a flower. But if you were to summarize Calvinism in just a sentence. Sinner saved by grace. That's fantastic. Go here first, and Marion. Magnify the sovereignty of God. Magnify the sovereignty of God. Absolutely. So typically, I remember one of my first interactions. So this is my first week on staff at USI. Uh, so this is, you know, 40, over 40 years ago. I'm in this guy's dorm room. And I said this, I think, my, my first week here. But, you know, Evansville is a different culture than what I'm used to. You know, it's... Uh, it's a little bit more Bible Belt here. Uh, you know, gospel tracts being handed out at Fall Fest. That doesn't happen at the Lake County Fair uh, in northwest Indiana. Uh, and so I'm in this guy's room, uh, 22, newly married. And I don't even remember how it got brought up, but this guy's like, man, I just can't stand those Calvinists. And I'm like, I'm like, yeah, me either. <laughs> just kidding, I didn't say that. But it was like one of, one of my first interactions of a guy who, who uh, his only concept of Calvinism was predestination. He, he knew nothing else under the umbrella of what a Calvinist believes, except for uh, uh, they, they just believe in that predestination thing, which is part of what Calvinism is, but it's much more deeper and beautiful than that as we uh, study the scriptures for the next few weeks. What we're going to see is at the end of the day, it does come down to God's grace, magnifying his sovereignty, um, and all of those things. But where, where Calvinism as a, as a formal thought came through was right after the Reformation, um, John Calvin, studying in Paris, uh, he wanted to be a priest, ended up deciding to study law, ends up 
adopting these viewpoints, and obviously if you've read anything of Calvin, he's absolutely brilliant, moves to Geneva where he begins to study and, and write these things out. He's most known for what would be called the Institutes of Christian Religion. I know Ernie, my first year here, did a, uh, I, don't, what, I don't even know what that time's called, but a, a study through the Institutes of Christian Religion. It's, it's fantastic. It's very dense, but if you want to tackle things like that, it'd be a good place to start. But bonus points if anyone can name all four people on this, on this picture. I'll buy you at Starbucks if you like that kind of thing. If not, I'll buy it for myself. Who? No, it's not. Nope, Zwingli's not on there. Calvin is the one, yeah, center left. Knox is the one on the far right. Theodore Beza is the one in between Knox and Calvin, and the first one, believe it or not, is named Will Farrell. Uh, <laughs> I'm not joking. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure that's how you pronounce it, but Farrell, you know. I don't speak Spanish. Just kidding. That's a quote from a Will Farrell movie. Uh, anyway, sorry. Too far. Anyway, okay, so. Uh, John Calvin is teaching in Geneva. One of his students is named Theodore Beza, who's up there. He begins to take over uh, the school that Calvin had started. And one of Theodore Beza's brightest students was uh, a guy named Jacob Arminius. And Jacob Arminius, brilliant guy. He's studying under Beza and decides, you know, I I really don't believe that this is what the Bible teaches about uh, who God is, how he saves, uh, how he saves sinners. And Arminius writes out all these things, and he dies, but he has a, a significant group of followers. And these followers were called the Remonstrants, uh, and they were followers of Jacob Arminius who wrote out everything that Arminius said, compiled it, and put into what's called the five articles of the Remonstrants. So these, are, these might sound pretty familiar. Article one is conditional election. Article two is unlimited atonement. Article 3 is deprivation. Article 4 is resistible grace. Article 5 is falling from grace. So if that sounds familiar, there's a reason why. It's because these articles get published, and those people, the Reformed Church at the time, so those who were uh, studying under Calvin, the the Dutch Church, the Dutch Reformed Church, uh, gathers together in what's called the Synod of Dort. Um, And so uh, one of my supporting churches in Northwest Indiana uh, is in the Christian Reformed Church, if you're familiar with that denomination. They still hold to uh, the canons of Dort, read these things that are mostly uh, Dutch believers. Uh, so they gather together in this synod, it's more or less a meeting, and they write a response to these five articles that the Remonstrants put out. And in that response is the canons of Dort, and the most famous aspect of the canons of Dort is tulip or the five points of Calvinism, which would be the opposite of what the Remontrance about. Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. So that's kind of how we get here. We have, we have these two camps. We have the Reformed Church, and we have uh, the followers of Jacob Arminius, and that is, you know, bled out into uh, different denominations, even in our own country today. Uh, you know, denominations who believe in... Um, different ways that God has saved us. So with that being said, we're going to spend the next five weeks breaking down each one of those articles, studying it, 
uh, why we as a church hold to those, why we believe Scripture teaches that, and why it makes a difference in the way that we view God, ourselves, um, our church, our lost friends, and so on. So, let's get into it. Total depravity. It's on the back side of your sheet. Uh, R.C. Sproul says, he, he prefers to call it uh, humanity's radical corruption rather than total depravity. I'll explain why in a second, but so sorry for the typo. Uh, anyway, total depravity is not. We talked about this the first week, uh, or the second week when we were talking about grace. Total depravity is not the belief that you are as wicked as possible. So that's a common thought. That's part of the reason why RC doesn't like the, the definition total depravity is because it's misleading. It misleads people to think what this doctrine teaches is that all of us are as bad as we possibly could be. We're all as wicked as Hitler. We all, you know, we cannot get any worse. And that's not what this doctrine is teaching. Although, you know, you can come to those sorts of conclusions uh, based on kind of what your standard is for morality and things like that. But what total depravity is teaching in this article is that it is the belief that every part of your being, your body, your mind, your soul, has been corrupted by sin. Every part of who you are, your thoughts, your mind, soul, even your body, um, has been corrupted by sin. And so the reason R.C. likes to call... Oh, yeah, I should probably reference these two. I've, I've been using two books throughout this class. Uh, one I've referenced a few times, What is Reformed Theology by Sproul. Uh, a, I think it's a must-read on a lot of these uh, different doctrines of Calvinism. Uh, and then Piper published this really cool article uh, in 1985 and put it in book form a couple years ago, just called Five Points, uh, Towards a Deeper Experience of God's Grace. I love that. Um, so, um, so the reason that R.C. likes this uh, definition, humanity's radical corruption, so much is because of, of that word radical. And so in the Latin, uh, that word is derived from radix, which is, means core. And so at your core or at your heart, uh, what is pumping through your veins is sin. It's corruption. It's in every part of who you are, every part of your being. And I think we even kind of get this illustration when Jesus gives uh, trees that bear bad fruit versus good fruit, right? And so even R.C. would say uh, something along the lines of, I don't think I put this in my notes, uh, we aren't sinners because we sin, but we sin because we're sinners. And so th that might sound confusing or like I'm just, uh, you know, using weird words together. But the reason why it's significant is because when we look at that illustration of the tree, uh, the tree is not a bad tree because the fruit is bad. But the fruit is bad because the tree is bad, right? Does that make sense? Uh, and so even for all of us uh, as people, the fruit that is going to come from us is not because we're trying to bear good fruit or because good things are happening in our life, because it's at our core, something will be produced. Uh, you know, it's like our heart is a factory, and it can produce things. Uh, and if you are in sin, all that can be produced is bad fruit. So, um, if I were to define, or, you know, to narrow down total depravity using one word or one concept... The word would be ability. And I think I have that. So sorry. There. Ability. Um, so this is the first blank, our lack of ability. Um, and so I think 
I was, you know, working on some of this last night, and I was talking to Jen about this. And um, ability just means the, you know, the possession of a skill that makes you able to perform a task, right? It's what an ability is. And we all have abilities. It's, it's pretty amazing the things that we're able to do and even the things that some of us are really good at. And you can look at someone and be like, man, how is that person so good at that? Like, how can that person play piano? I'm amazed every time someone plays piano. Because then I sit by the piano and I'm like, I don't know what's going on here, how this can turn into beautiful music. But it doesn't work like that. But yesterday, I was playing the Faith Bible Golf Scramble. And here's the thing about my golf game is... I know what I have to do. I, I have the ball. I see the hole. I know where I need to hit it. I even know what club that I need to use to put the ball close to the hole. So I can go out, I can grab my five iron, and I, can, and I know where my feet need to be. I know the, the fundamental techniques of keeping my eye on the ball, not lifting my head up, you know, following through on my swing, all of those things. There's one problem with my golf game is that when I actually hit the ball, it doesn't go where I want it to go, right? It's a big problem. And I think the reality is, is a lot of us can view our, our lives as Christians like that, is I know, I know what I need to do. And because where it gets tricky is, is every once in a while, I'll put the ball up there, you know? It might be one time, one time every 18 holes, but I'll put it on the green. And I'll be like, man, that was amazing. Like so much progress is being made. And so often we think the Christian life is the same thing. Is I know where the ball is. I know where the holes. I know what I have to do. I know how to get there. I know, uh, I know what needs to happen in order to feel like I'm accomplishing the task. And we think, man, if I can just work on my game a little bit more, if I can just grasp the techniques, if I can just see some victories, then I'll finally have mastered the game of golf. Or in this illustration, the Christian life. If I can just put the ball close to the hole enough times, I'd finally be a good enough Christian. Right? I'd have finally earned enough merit before God. And the reality is, is when we're talking about total depravity, you miss the ball every time. You don't even make contact. You whiff, and you whiff, and you whiff. And the ball on your own, when it's just you and your club, or just you and your life, or just you and your abilities, you'll never make contact when it's just yourself. So the question then is, how do we have the ability, or how do we get the ability to earn God's favor or to know Christ? Um, well, we have a problem, and the reason why we can't hit the ball if you know, we keep the illustration going uh, is because of this idea of original sin. Why do we not have the ability to choose God or original sin? So if you could go to Romans 5, that would be great. If you have a Bible or your phone. And this text is so key into, into understanding God's grace, into understanding where we, where we are before God. Uh, because if we miss this... Uh, yeah, I'll explain in a second. Uh, so Romans 5, starting in 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses 
even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was the type of the one to come. In verse 18, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Uh, so this idea of original sin is this. Uh, it's not the belief of, or it's not just focusing on what was Adam and Eve's sin in the garden. You know, that was the original sin. But what the doctrine of original sin is, is the fallout from Adam and Eve's sin in the garden. It's not what they did, but it's what happened as a result of it. And we see it really clearly in verse 18, that because of that sin of Adam and Eve choosing to bring sin into the world, that it led to condemnation for all men. That's what original sin is. So total depravity is this, that all of us stand condemned before God as a result of what Adam and Eve did. So because of their sin, it leads into our own personal sin. So, you know, we see this in Psalm 51. Uh, we see this throughout Paul's epistles, that all of us are born into sin. Um, and starting with that idea of original sin. So, the doctrine of original sin, it was the basis of the conflict between Augustine and Pelagius. Um, is anyone unfamiliar with who, August or, sorry, who is familiar with who Augustine and Pelagius are? Raise your hand. Okay, so we got to rewind about a long time, a thousand years before the Reformation. Uh, there was a man named Augustine, and Augustine held to this idea of original sin. And uh, another man argued with Augustine that um, if there is a moral responsibility for us to obey then we therefore must have the moral ability to obey. Does that make sense? Um, so if God says, do not sin, or you will be condemned, what Pelagius would say is that because God said that, therefore every human has the ability to not sin. That's what Pelagius would say. And Augustine on the opposite extreme would say, no, 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 it's, it's impossible. Outside of God's grace... Through Christ, there is no way that you can receive a perfect record. Pelagius says, moral ability. Augustine says, God's grace alone. Uh, and so that, that is kind of the dynamic that we're faced with when tackling this issue of total depravity or God's grace or God's sovereignty over the broad umbrella of what's called Reformed theology is, do we have the moral ability or do we not? Uh, I would I would argue that as a result of even something as simply as, you know, six words in verse 18, that therefore all are condemned because of one sin, it would lead to us saying, we are in desperate need of God's grace. Um, so why is that? Because of our nature. Um, I don't use the New King James Version ever for anything, uh, except for Ephesians 2.1. <laughs> Uh, it's a great translation. Yeah, I think it's great, but I, th I love what it says in Ephesians 2.1 because I think it makes uh, this point very clear in that you were made, or, and you, he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. So we look at our nature, and I, I talk about this at our weekly meetings fairly often at USI because there's such a cultural belief uh, in America's cultural Christianity that we have that we're all born Christians. Like, we're born, my parents go to church, I go to church, I'm, I'm just 
just a Christian. It's what I do. Uh, I don't know necessarily what Christians believe. I, I know some of the important stuff, but I'm just, that's just who I've always been. I've just always been a believer in God and Jesus. And, um, and what Paul is saying here is at some point, you were made alive. You were made alive. And you had to be. Because if you weren't made alive, you would still be dead in your trespasses and sins. It's an, it's an amazing truth that our nature is not child of God. Our nature is what the rest of Ephesians 2 says, child of wrath. And at some point, God can restore you um, to child of God. Um, we're running out of time, so we're not going to go through Romans 3, but this is uh, a well-known passage where Paul says um, that there is no one who is righteous, no, not one. Um, no one does good. No, not one. Um, but I think there's an amazing verse here. Um, so Romans 14, 23. Turn there really quick, because I think this is going to uh, prove a very helpful point um, if you ever get in this conversation with someone. Um, so as a result of our nature, so our nature is what? Uh, outside of Christ, child of wrath, in Christ, child of God. But as a result of our fallen nature, so someone who is outside of God's grace, the only option for that person to choose is sin. You can only choose sin. And, you know, you could get in a, an interesting conversation along something like, uh, but that person is so kind, and that person is so generous. And all of those things can be very true, right? There are millions of kind and generous uh, men and women who don't know Christ as Lord and Savior. Uh, but that doesn't mean that any of that, it doesn't excuse sin, frankly. So what Romans 14, 23 says is uh, fantastic. It says, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So what Paul is arguing for is, uh, you know, it's something else. But the point is still the same. That in any decision, action, thought that you do, if it does not proceed from faith and love of who God is and wanting to please him and glorify him and enjoy him forever, it's sin. And that even for us as believers should kind of wake us up to our, our own decision making and why we do the things we do and uh, why we think the way we think. And even in our you know, frustrations, bitterness should lead us to repentance. Um, but what, why I'm sharing this verse is simply to say, if you were outside of Christ, you, you don't do anything from faith, right? We would, I think we would all land on that, that before we were Christians, uh, we, we had no faith. It was, you know, faith in ourselves or faith in a God of our own making. So what Paul is saying is, if you're doing something outside of faith, uh, it is sin. So what does this mean? Um, what does it mean to do good then? This is an actual question. What does it mean to do good? So we as Christians, we want to do good. What does it mean? How do you do good? Glorifies God. So it glorifies God. Yep. What else? Does good to others. Hmm. From a pure motive, yep. What else? Love that answer. What does it mean to do good? Come on, I know you guys want to be good, right? We all do. We all want to do good. I mean, I'm not saying that tongue-in-cheek, like, 
We really do. We want to be good. We want our neighbors to, to look at us and say, man, like, I'm really thankful for this person or that person. They do good for us. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be lining up with God's word. Pleases the Father. Yeah. Yes, the fruits of the Spirit, absolutely. And I mean, there's so many other things too, right? Like, I mean, we'd say at, probably at the core of good is self-sacrifice, right? Because it's, you know, uh, doing something for someone else's benefit even at the expense of ourself. Um, but I think if we want to think of good, we, we can think about it in two ways. You know, the first is when, you know, we're talking about the person outside of, of Christ, we would say that person displays what we'd call external obedience, and so what external obedience is, is they strive to tell the truth and they uh, do kind things for other people. That's external obedience. So think of, think of an illustration like this. I, I stole this from John Piper. Um, and he gives an illustration of a father who is going to allow his son uh, to use his car to go take his uh, friends to a basketball game that night. And he, he tells his son, okay, the, the only rule, they come to agreement, the only rule is before you take out the car, you just have to wash it. Very simple. Wash the car, go have fun with your friends. So they come to this agreement, and then right before the son's about to go, you remind him and say, hey, Griffin, that's my son's name. It's crazy I have a son. Uh, hey, Griffin, you need to go wash the car. Uh, and Griffin says, I don't, I don't think I'm going to do that. I think I'm just going to take the car and go, and then maybe I can wash it later. And then you, as the father, gently remind your son, if you're going to take the car, you need to go wash it. He refuses, and so you say, of course, you, you need to tell him the truth when he resists. If you don't wash the car, you can't take it. Son storms away. Some time goes by, and you look out the window, and he's begrudgingly washing the car, right? Right? We've probably all done something like that with our parents or our kids or, you know, we've, we've seen one of those situations happen. Why is he washing the car? He's washing the car simply so he can take the car, right? That, that, that is a form of external obedience. I'm mad at my father. I really don't like him right now, but I need the car, so I'm going to wash it. But internal obedience would be this, is I love my father, and I'm so thankful he's even given me the opportunity to drive a car. And I'm going to wash it because it's a good gift. And I love him. And I want to honor him in what I do. I want to obey him. And so in the same way, to do good means that there has to be internal obedience. So even when, uh, I mean, you can think about this in 1 Corinthians when God talks about a cheerful giver, right? Why does he talk about a cheerful giver and not just be a giver? is because it's internal obedience, is I want to honor the Father. I want to glorify Him in all things that I do. I want to love Him. Um, makes a distinction between compliance and obedience. 
Yeah, compliance and obedience. Absolutely. Um, okay, I'm running out of time. Okay. Two more points. But I'm not going to be able to do both. So I'm going to do one today, and then I'm going to finish next week. Um, okay, so free will. One of, the, one of the biggest questions in regard to, to Calvinism or um, you know, these five points is, at the end of the day, do I really have free will? Do I really have the ability to choose? And I believe, and Augustine believes, and Jonathan Edwards believes, along with lots of other people, that you do. You have the ability to make decisions in your life. I have the ability to flip this stand over and never teach this class again. Uh, I would not do that. I, I love this stand. It's fantastic. I don't know where you get something like this, uh, but it's great. So you have the ability to choose things. Ooh, very well. Um, so Jonathan Edwards defined the will this way. It is simply the mind choosing. That's what Jonathan Edwards would define as the will, the mind choosing. And, and Augustine would agree with this, and he would say something along the lines of, that fallen man has kept their will. So all of us, uh, as sinful men and women, we have a will, yet we've lost our liberty. It's an interesting word, especially in, in America. And what that word liberty means is to act as one pleases. Okay? So stick with me here. You have a will, but outside of Christ, no liberty. Okay? So you have the ability to make decisions, but you don't have the ability to act freely. Sounds contradictory. Let me explain. So uh, flip to Romans 7, and we'll see a little bit, little bit of this. In, ah, don't flip there. I'll just read it to you. Um, don't want to spend too much time flipping pages. Okay. Um, so the way Edwards would describe it is this. I think, it's, I think it's fantastic. Is that each one of us, in every decision we make, Every decision we make from when we wake up to when we go to bed and everything in between, we always choose the strongest inclination in our mind. So everything we do, we, we're making decisions all day, whether you drink coffee or water or both, whether you want to make the extra time to cook bacon or just eat cereal. Every decision you make is based on your mind's strongest inclination. So... If that is true, and, you know, let's, you know, I could give you numerous examples all the way from minor cereal or bacon. Bacon tastes better, takes more time, it's a little bit more messy, but it's worth it. Or it's really easy just to eat cereal and clean up, and I can do all these other things. All the way to an extreme example, um, I read this in Piper's book, so I also didn't make it up, but if someone uh, is going to rob you and says something like, uh, your wallet or your life, what is your mind's strongest inclination likely going to be? I, I don't want you to have my wallet, but I would rather keep my life than my wallet. Does that make sense? You're, you're choosing the strongest inclina inclination. Therefore, when it comes to choosing God or the things of God, what this idea of free will under the umbrella of original sin is saying outside of God's grace, your only inclination, your, your mind's only thought can be yourself. That's the liberty that you lost as a result of Adam and Eve in the garden, is no longer can you choose God because you don't want him. Because your mind, your being has been corrupted by sin, and you can only choose yourself. That's the liberty that's lost. So,
the Pelagian view would be this, uh, that God has graciously enabled every person to repent and believe, and he will not interfere. It says, you have, the, you have the chance, go figure it out. And I think any one of us who have tried to live a life honoring to Christ would say, outside of his grace, I couldn't do it. Outside of his grace, I'd walk away. Outside of his grace, I would have never known him. Outside of God's grace, sending someone to tell me about Jesus, I would never know him. Outside of God's grace of giving me parents who love God, I would never know him. We always point back to God's grace, which is why uh, Faith Bible Church and myself would hold to this Augustinian view that before the Holy Spirit regenerates our hearts from death to life, we only have the ability to choose sin. And that's why... Uh, this idea of grace is so significant for our study. Uh, it's because we know as men and women who are under sin that we're in desperate need of God saying, I'm going to go get him, or I'm going to go get her. I'm going to pull them out, redeem them, breathe life into them, give them my spirit, and save them from their sin. That's why we call Jesus Savior. So uh, next week we're going to be talking about how God goes and rescues sinners. Um, so I'll pray really quick, um, and then we'll kind of top some of this off next week. Um, God, so thankful for your grace. Um, God, I know so many of us uh, can point back to many moments in our life where we've seen how abundant your mercy is to us. God, just so thankful, uh, God, for whether family or friends, God, who, who told us about you, God, who invested in our lives, God, and just thankful, God, that you saved us. God, just pray for anyone in here who uh, does not know you as Savior and Lord, God, that you would redeem them. Um, God, that you would give them your spirit and save them, regenerate their hearts. God, just pray for worship this morning, God, that as a result of just spending a little bit of time in your word this morning, God, that we would know you more, trust you more, enjoy you more, God, and that would spur us on to worship together. Uh, We love you and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.